0: Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, a new force of digital innovators digs in across government, and the Army moves out on its data strategy. It's Thursday, July 14th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. Federal employees are less satisfied with their jobs than previous years, according to the Partnership for Public Service. The 2021 Engagement and Satisfaction score in its best places to work in the federal government survey is 64.5. That's down four and a half points since the 2020 evaluation. At the agency level, the partnership says only about a third of agencies saw their scores go up. An industry day is coming for the Defense Department's Rapid Defense Experimentation Reserve project. Pentagon officials say the project will speed up the delivery of new warfighting capabilities to combatant commanders johns hopkins applied physics laboratory in laurel maryland will host the industry day july 26th you can read more about these stories and lots of other news at fedscoop.com the 13th year of fed talks is happening august 24th high level leaders in government industry academia and more will offer lightning talks keynotes and fireside chats it's happening at the ritz carlton in pentagon city you can find a link to learn more and sign up in today's show notes at the The government's already seeing results from the first group of U.S. Digital Corps fellows, according to one of the program's overseers. The director of the Technology Transformation Service, Dave Zvenich, tells FedScoop 13 agencies have accepted more than 40 fellows into the program. Tony Scott's chief executive officer of intrusion. He's former chief information officer of the United States. Tony, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. I know you're a big booster of all of these kinds of programs when you were in government, what's the benefit that this brings at the agency level for having this type of talent in-house? Welcome.
1: Well, good morning. I think, you know, the biggest benefit really is um, an ability to quickly get access to skill sets that might take months or years even to get into an agency following some of the normal Uh, processes. So uh, at a time when tech talent's hard to come by anyhow, I see this as a great opportunity for agencies. Uh, overall.
0: Where do you think this group fits into the broader innovation or fellowship landscape? Presidential Innovation Fellows exist, have for a number of years. They're making an impact. There are other groups like this across the landscape. Where does this fit in? What's different about uh, the U.S. Digital Corps in your view? and or, or what should be different maybe? What should other organizations be doing to distinguish themselves from the other ones?
1: Well, I think one of the challenges, Francis, historically has been um, how to integrate these n- new talent or people that didn't come up through the government ranks with the rank and file, the people who have everyday responsibilities and are charged you know, with the long-term care and feeding of technology in the uh, agency. And if you can figure out a way to bring people in and successfully integrate them and have them work on agency priorities um, and the most critical things that the agency is trying to do, meaning there's strong alignment there, it's great. If they're asked to come in and just given free reign to sort of run amok and work on whatever the heck they want to work on, then you have a, you know, disconnect and and, and those efforts tend to fail, you know, pretty quickly. So I think that's really the challenge uh, when it when it comes right down to it.
0: With all of the issues that technology organizations across government have to deal with, how does one determine, OK, we want to bring in somebody in this program, whatever the program may be, and we want to assign them to which one of the like 15, 20, 30 really hard problems that an agency has to solve. I imagine that triage uh, effort on the very, very front end of this may be one of the hardest parts of this, Tony.
1: Well, I think it is. And you have competing interests um, in any agency. There's lots of different stakeholders who, you know, all have different ideas about what the priorities should be and uh, how to use the precious resources that are often available. And so, Having a good governance process where you can have the dialogue and a framework for helping make those prioritization decisions, I think, is a part of the ongoing management challenge uh, in any agency. And as you know, particularly a, an environment where leadership changes every couple of years, it's uh, getting continuity on that is, uh, is, a, is a real challenge.
0: 40 FTEs at 13 agencies is a great start, but it's just a start, and it, and it, it doesn't begin to, uh, to address the broader long-term challenges that agencies have. How can one scale an organization like this, whether it's in an agency and we decide we're going to bring in 10 of these people instead of just the one that we have in the first cohort, or more broadly, uh, how does one scale this across the government to make sure that it stays effective?
1: Well, I think there's a couple of scale challenges here. One is, just first one is funding. You know, how much how much money goes into the program and who gets to make the decisions about spending that money. Um, uh, that's always been, you know, sort of one of the challenges. But assuming you can solve the funding challenge, then it's one, I think, of uh, demonstrating value over time. Um, And I think it's important for these teams to make sure that they are capturing the benefits and creating the right visibility of uh, not only the successes, but the lessons learned so that the same mistakes aren't made obviously over and over and over again.
0: What's your sense of the ecosystem that exists for the sharing of those ideas, success stories, lessons learned across government? I I get what you're saying about you want to make sure, basically, it sounds like you're saying we need to tell Congress the story that this is working so they'll continue to provide the funding for it. But it also strikes me it's important in in a kind of a horizontal level to make sure that these uh, communities are all feeding off each other also.
1: Well, I think that's exactly right. And uh, it's not only lessons learned for these digital teams, but it's also lessons learned for the host agencies. You know how can they better utilize uh, this set of resources? How can they um, be more specific about the kind of talent that they need? At the end of the day, I think the current programs require that ultimately the agencies reimburse GSA for these resources and. That will work well if there's a good back and forth between the agencies and GSA uh, in terms of what the needs are. Um, you know, all the funding things are worked out, and uh, the talent matches the uh, the needs of the agency. And that's not a sounds easy on paper, but um, you know, the the government's pretty big, <laughs> and and there's a lot of uh, you know, stakeholders and interests there that uh, have to get engaged. So it's, uh, it's no small task, I think.
0: Dave Zvenich at TTS tells my colleague, Dave Nitschapier, I would love for 100% of these fellows to stay in government. Now, that may be an aspirational goal, it probably is. But I've been struck over the years, Tony, by the number of people that come in from outside government, whether it's through the U.S. Digital Service or other organizations, and yeah, they don't serve for 20 years, but they serve for a lot longer than I think people expected them to stay when this first started to happen under under your tenure and, and, and during the Obama administration, that emphasis really began. Um, what's driving that? Is it as simple as mission? Because everybody says, well, the mission of the government is very compelling. That's true. But I wonder if it's as simple as that for retaining these kinds of folks who really could go back to Silicon Valley, go back to Austin or wherever, and really do very well for themselves and wind up staying in Washington.
1: I think there's a couple of things, Francis, that I've heard from people. One is you really do get to work with some of the smartest people you've ever had the opportunity to work with. And you get to work on some of the hardest problems that you've ever been challenged to work on. And I think for a certain group of people, there's an attractiveness to that Um, i would also say it's you know washington is a different place to work than it used to be a few years ago it's a pretty exciting place and there's a lot of good things going on that you might not get Um, and then i think also there's sort of if you're in the tech space there's sort of a fatigue that's set in with some of the social media sort of other places where you might work, and um, as I said earlier, some of these problems that you get to work on if you're affiliated with a government agency are affecting people's lives, Uh, and as you get further along in your career, um, you begin to think about your legacy, you begin to think about the contributions that you may have made or not have made and i think a lot of people want to put something on the scoreboard and say i really did something i accomplished something with my life with my degree with my um you know finances all you know all kinds of different things could be motivators but those are some of the common threads that i've heard from people and um, and i think it's great and i think we need to encourage A lot more of it frankly. 13
0: agencies accepting these fellows, um, but with all due respect to General Services Administration and OMB, I mean they kind of saw it coming and they understand the benefits of this. What would a successful uh, evangelism program, for lack of a better word, look like um, to get the word out to other agencies that they should participate in, that there's an ROI here and that there's a long-term benefit to derive from this?
1: Well, I think it's a couple of things. One, you know making some you know very visible examples of uh, of these successes. Um, but also talking to people in the agencies. Um, you know it's it's easy to be heads down when you've faced all kinds of different challenges and uh, getting people in agencies to pull their head up and and look around and see that, Uh, You know, there are some other resources and other approaches is is a is still a hard problem, I think. Um, But but I think there's also a lot of great venues in D.C. and around the country where these things can be exposed. And, you know, the uh, work that you do, I think, is just a great example of ways that these things can get uh, a little more airtime and and, uh, hopefully help people see the benefits
0: tony scott great to talk to you thank you very much for joining me today great to see you thanks so much you can read more about the u.s digital core fellows in today's show notes the scoop i'm francis rose the host of the daily scoop podcast a programming note the next episode of the show is this coming monday july 18th the chief information officer of the united states claire martirana and the executive director of the technology modernization fund raylene young will be here They'll tell you what's coming for the fun for the rest of the year and a lot more about the TMF. That's Monday's Daily Scoop podcast at Fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The Army's data strategy is driving change throughout the force. Services is using data at the tactical edge and in the back office. Lori Mongold is Division Chief for Global Force Information Management for the Army. Lori, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. How are you taking all of the pieces that are, the Army is trying to do in their digital transformation journey and putting them together, transitioning from strategy to execution and reality? Welcome, Lori.
2: It's good to be here. Um, yes, so what I a, what a, like a monumental feat, right? Like to try to take all the bits and pieces to transform our army from what has historically been a very kinetic fight to a non-kinetic fight. Um, as we look toward the future, as we gather intel and understand our adversaries and how the fight on the battlefield is changing significantly, Um, We started with strategy. It's the Army, right? We're all going to put policies in place. Uh, We're going to put a vision out. We're going to put a lot of strategic documents that sort of drive what is the Department of Defense doing? How does the Department of the Army fit into the landscape of the Department of Defense? And then from there, like, what are the key parts that each of the components of the Army, uh, whether that be the actual active duty, the Army Reserve, the National Guard, whether that be your civilian, whether that be the business mission area, the warfighting mission area, how do we collude all that together to make sure that as we go on this transformation journey, we're all doing it together. So some of the things that the Army has done is start with uh, that strategy that we talked about and then sort of establish the. Um, Entities that are in charge, for example, a chief data office um, underneath the, the uh, CIO, uh, the chief information office. And then from there, we've we've aligned some data structure like data stewards across the mission areas. Um, we've looked across past the data stewards and we've looked for functional data managers, like those folks that, that have literacy of the data. Right. So there's a there's a ton of data coming to us. Um, nothing new. The Army's always had a ton of data. Um, I actually read a statistic that said uh, in 2017, which was about five years ago, the Army processed about 22 terabytes of data a day, exponential. Um, The issue is, is what do you do with all that data? How do you wrangle it? How do you collude it? How do you make it make sense? And and how do you gain decision dominance from that data? Um, And so this structure that aligns with like a a chief data officer and these data stewards, and we put in policies in place that allow us to sort of understand how to identify our authoritative data sources, register that data in an enterprise data service catalog, uh, making it available so folks know where to go to get the right data in order to be able to access it and use it. Um, the Army established, uh, you know, their their data strategy focusing on eight guiding principles, um, seven uh, initiatives that needed to occur across data. So starting with a, a strategic asset as a data, um, how to use data governance, stewardship of that data and um, Artificial intelligence, how do we provide data in order for machine learning and artificial intelligence to start to read and understand that data? Um, And then making it visible, accessible, usable, um, ensuring that there's integrity in the data, uh, making sure that it's secure, um, so that as we provide this data to our senior leaders to make risk-informed decisions, We've done it in a way that allows that data to be protected and those decisions to be more powerful. So there's there's a lot of ongoing activities, Um, just simply aligning into mission areas and sort of trying to uh, compartmentalize without creating silos of excellence, but making sure that we have folks that understand what they're doing and then starting to integrate and making sure that it's interoperable. Um, Another big area is architecture. Right, so we we've been really good about uh, defining a requirement, tossing it over the fence to the acquisition community to sort of go build whatever that material solution is, uh, but very much siloed. Um, Not maliciously, it's it's just the way our business processes are. Uh, They most of our business processes are about 30 to 35 years old. Um, so we haven't done a lot of modernization and transformation of the way we do business to make sure that the way that we're able to fight on the battlefield is how we need to as we transition to this non-kinetic fight. Um, so what we've done now is through the architecture lane, uh, integrated enterprise architecture from like a business process perspective, Um, integrated and interoperable system architecture, and then most importantly, that integrated and interoperable data architecture, making sure from the first time that the data is generated and transacted and made available for use, it's actually made available across the mission areas, across echelons, so from strategic to operational to the tactical edge. So a lot going on.
0: There is a lot going on there, Lori, but of all of the great stuff that you laid out there, a lot of really important concepts, the one that jumped out at me is the idea of knowing where to go to get the right data. That requires that one knows what the right data is and what it is that that person will need in order to uh, uh, analyze the information and make the decision that that person needs to make. What steps is the Army undertaking in order to identify, tag, curate, whatever name you want to attach to data so that one knows where to go to get the right data and one knows what the right data is?
2: No, very good question. So empowering that framework of that chief data officer, that data steward and the functional data manager. Um, Those folks have been empowered to go through the process of breaking apart systems, breaking apart uh, end-to-end business processes. Like, for example, my office is responsible for the deploy to redeploy and retrograde a material end-to-end business process. So everything from uh, the time that we receive strategic directive and guidance for what it is an Army is going to have to do, to the time that we design that force to be able to uh, lay out the conceptual framework for what are the people that we need, the, the equipment that we need, what are the grades of those people, how many of that piece of equipment do we need, the modernization level of that equipment, and then moving that on to aligning with combatant commanders and army service requirements um, on to preparing those forces and infrastructure, and then ultimately deploying and employing those forces. And so taking apart that business process and conducting business process re-engineering of it, With the stakeholder community, with the functional SMEs, the folks that do this on a daily basis, uh, taking sort of a clean sheet approach, like if you were the king or the queen for the day, how would your day-to-day life be easier if you could draw out the the task and the steps that you could do in your day, you know, to make your life easier. Um, And a lot of what we found was... um, that end to end business process is about 60% manual in 2022. Um, Still very swivel chair activity. Um, Hey, use phone calls, a PowerPoint spreadsheet deep on Johnny and Jill's computer. Um, So this is an opportunity to to sort of restructure that business process Partner with industry for best practices on on how do we do things? That, you know, breaking our business process down simplified. We are assigned a mission. We have to provide resources to support that mission, and we have to get the right people at the right place at the right time for that right mission. And so, simplifying that, understanding the best way to do that by introduction of like robust workflows, um, access to the data early and often. Um, not having to do like the first time that data is entered, not having to enter it again and again and again. Um, And then back to the identification of that data, those folks in that process that are those um, primary responsibility for that business process, they're also the same people that serve as your functional data managers. So they're the folks that know the data that they're transacting. They understand the data. They're literate of the data, which is, a, which is a key, key element we've been trying to drive specifically in the Army, data literacy, um, understanding the data, how it's used, what does it mean if I take this data element and combine it with this data element? Does it mean something different? Um, those folks, empowering them to be able to identify that data and then taking it a step further and registering those data objects and those authoritative data sources in an enterprise data service catalog that's managed at the enterprise level, um, and then that serves as a one-stop shop. So I, I think about it. I'm, I'm just a, I'm just a country girl from West Virginia. So I think about when I walk into my public library and I, and I don't exactly know where to go. I go to that card catalog. That's sort of what this enterprise data service catalog is. I, I know I need some data. I'm not exactly sure where to get it. I'm not exactly literate of it. So I go to this enterprise data service catalog, I figure out where it is and I'm redirected to the right POCs. And then empowering the use of APIs to manage that data um, and break apart those brittle system interfaces that we have today. Um, And then huge, huge is obviously the culture change. We could probably have an entire, you know, week-long session on culture in of itself.
0: Yeah, and that's actually where I wanted to go next, Lori, because I, and I'm not just picking on the Army. It's all over DOD, and it's all over the federal government, but they love their processes. And they love their that's how we do it here. And I wonder what the cultural movement is like, what the change management is like in an environment where that's how we've always done it. And maybe they're not crazy about somebody coming along and saying we need to redo this business process. We need to maybe break it and put it back together again.
2: Yeah, so we um, so with my office being that lead for that core business process, like so, you know, this will be a little airing a dirty laundry for the army, but I, but I know for a fact that this is replicated like everywhere because I've I've traveled and talked to tons of people that are sort of trying to attack the same thing, but I probably talked to let's just say three hundred people conservatively about hey. If you were the king or queen for the day, how would your life be easier? And I thought I was expecting somebody to turn over a blank sheet of paper and start drawing out for me something like, oh, my gosh, if you could do this and you could do this and you could do this, like, I'll love you forever. Um, But actually... I didn't have one single person out of 300 do that. It was tweak a little bit here, tweak a little bit here. You know, if I didn't have to walk across the room to ask Joe something and I could email him, it would be better. And and the idea that email was automation was astounding. Like I was just like, oh my gosh, like totally shocked about that. Um, the real value came in after this business process re-engineering when you pulled out the material requirements and you started to get into rapid prototyping. And so one of the things that the Army has has started to embrace is that that ability to do rapid prototyping. And I'll air quote rapid because it was about nine months, but that's pretty rapid for the Army. It was about seven to 10 to 15 years before. So we were able to get folks in and let them touch the keyboard, let them interact with industry let them hear what was in the realm of the possible and there is a little bit of resistance in the beginning um they like what's wrong with the thing i have now why does the secretary of the army want to turn it off it's worked for me for 40 years why can't i just keep using it but through our strategic communication through our messaging through our um let us help you help the army. um, And it took a lot of like coaching and mentoring, like um, cheerleading and pom poms. Right, like I mean, I had to really break out and say, "Look, no, you—you you are a strategic asset to the army, and and I need to be able to tap into your brain and the and your mind, and and all day long, you get to be a data entry clerk, and I really need you for that analytical rigor that I'm positive you bring to the table." So we, so I started to divide people into those pockets. Right, who are the people I need to break out pom poms with? Who are the people that are biting and chomping? And who are those people that are all? Already there, and I call those people. Um, there's a video called "The First Follower," and, it, and it's about this guy who's just. They're at a concert, an outdoor concert. Um, everybody's probably drunk, but the guy gets up and and he starts doing this crazy dance, right? And and a little bit later, another guy gets up and starts dancing with him. He, he has no idea why the guy's dancing, but it looks fun and it looks interesting, and he wants to be a part of it. And the next thing you know, four people were there, and 10 people were there, and then 30 people were there, and all of a sudden, you have a revolution. That's sort of what my office does. We're like that crazy first dancer that gets up, and then we get that first follower. And once you get that first follower, it's a revolution.
0: Lori, how do you maintain this momentum? Three different areas I'm curious about. Mm -hmm. The cultural momentum that you've achieved, the strategic momentum that you've achieved, and you talked about how the Army goes about doing that in a more uh, organized, uh, structural way. And in a a tactical level, how do you maintain the momentum in all three of those areas?
2: Yes, so that's probably been the hardest part because back to talking about our processes, we can, we can do the business process re-engineering for like the processes that are right in front of our face that we're responsible for, but the processes across the army wide have to be able to adjust and change at the same speed. So once you get your following, if your acquisition process, for example, isn't as fluid and agile, then you start to see people flicker off and you start to see people say, this is the same old story, here we are again. Um, so so partnering with all of the right stakeholders, building that collaborative team across the Army, recognizing that it's not just the G3, it's not just the acquisition community, it's not just the folks that sit in that five-sided building. There's folks out in the field that are critical stakeholders that, that the enterprise is gonna put out a lot of policies and a lot of strategy, and we're gonna come up with a lot of initiatives but the folks that are actually going to have to execute and use that are the folks that are sitting out in the field. So getting out there, talking to those folks. And one of the, one of those um, positives of COVID was it forces to be more in a, in a, Virtual world where we are able to reach larger, larger audiences collectively. So before we would have to travel to one location, and you know, I'm just at Forcecom talking just to Forcecom, and then I'm just at the Army Material Command talking to the Army Material Command. And with the virtual world, I'm able to talk to Forcecom, AMC, the 82nd Airborne, the 101st, the 10th Mountain, all at the same time. And so we're able to see each layer. Of input and stakeholder, uh, stakeholder value, so that we have that human centered design as we move forward. And so that's been huge. Um, partnering with my senior leaders. So I'm sort of, you know, a, a middle tier. I'm, I'm a GS fifteen, so I'm here in the middle executing that strategic guidance. And so being able to have leaders that empower you and have open door and allow you to engage them, so that they know where they need to knock down a barrier, or they need to change a policy, or they need to eliminate um, a a guidance that was in place, you know, 30 years ago, that's no longer uh, valuable. And then um, the the other part is recognizing that multiple things have to occur in parallel. Um, While you're building a material solution, you're also at the same time thinking about the training, the force structure? Do I have the right skill sets to be able to introduce something in 2022, 2023, 2030? Um, what is the doctrine that's associated with that? Policies. Um, leadership. Um, do we have the right people in the leadership positions that that have that inertia to keep things moving forward? So it's a multi-pronged attack. Um, and I would say that it would be it's very difficult to set in the in the Pentagon and come up with policies and guidance if you haven't engaged at the operational and the tactical level. Um, so being open to that feedback uh, incorporating that feedback and then utilizing those folks to be able to test and evaluate what it is that you're trying to execute.
0: Lori Mongold, a lot more I'd love to cover and we're out of time, but I would love to have you come back and continue the conversation. Thanks very much.
2: Absolutely. Thank you.
0: You can read more about data in the army in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows. And on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped me put the show together. The entire Scoop News Group team contributes. to The Daily Scoop podcast back on Monday with Claire Martirana and Raylene Young. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.